0: Hello, Avril Danchak here. Welcome to Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills, Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, taking a deep dive into all aspects of uncertainty so that clinicians can manage it better and in less stressful ways. Hello, and welcome to this podcast in the series, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation. Today, I'm really thrilled to welcome our special guest, who's going to give a unique perspective on uncertainty in the consultation. And welcome Dr. Phil Hammond. Hello, Phil.
1: Hi there. Hey, are doing?
0: I'm fine, thank you. Now, Phil is not only a star of stage, screen and private eye, but has also practiced medicine in lots of different contexts. So Phil, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your medical roles.
1: Gosh, uh, I qualified in 1987, which seems like the mists of time now. Um, and I was known at medical school as Dr. Fumblefingers. So I realised I probably didn't have a career in surgery ahead of me. And I liked general practice. I liked the narrative and the story aspect of medicine. Um, but I was also a bit of a um, a young Turk. I was a junior doctor campaigner. I was very angry about junior doctor's working conditions. So I managed to land the Bath GP training scheme uh, in The days when it was actually quite popular to be a GP, it was quite competitive and somebody dropped out at the last minute and I got in on the shortlist. Um, And alongside being a GP trainee, I started a a comedy career with somebody, a house officer I'd met in Bristol called Tony Gardner. And we called ourselves Struck Off and Die uh, and uh, it was fairly political, angry, slightly black and bleak um expose of junior doctors working conditions alongside being a gp trainee i think if i'd been a hospital doctor i'd have been stamped on fairly quickly but in general practice they were very forgiving they encouraged you to speak up uh, and they liked the fact that we were taking this stance so i did my gp training worked for a wonderful gp trainer called brian clark who is a yorkshireman who came from a sink estate in yorkshire quite rare back then because most medical graduates were public school boys Uh, And he was lovely and he supported me, but understood that I wanted to explore other avenues outside medicine. So uh, I did a few GP locums uh, and started doing comedy up at the Edinburgh Fringe and made lots of noise. Met Ian Hislop in the toilet at a BBC light entertainment party and uh, started writing for Private Eye and exposed lots of big stuff, including the Bristol Heart Scandal, which became what was the largest public inquiry in British history at the time but also wanted to put stuff back in. And so I applied for a job uh, as a lecturer in medical communication at Birmingham Medical School <clears throat> and got it on the basis of the fact that I'd performed well at the Edinburgh Fringe and presumably could control a lecture full of medical students and absolutely loved that. We had a team of um, med- uh, actors from Birmingham uh, University and we used them as role players uh, and we introduced OSCEs. We were one of the first universities to introduce OSCEs as assessments, but we do quite complex comp- uh, consultations. So we teach medical students how to manage uncertainty, how to explain a complex diagnosis, how to admit an error. And we do some sl- slightly naughty consultations where we get the, the patient to flirt with the doctor and see how they manage that. And we would roar with laughter. Um, so I loved doing that for three and a bit years and then got the same job back in Bristol. Uh, where I had exposed the, the huge heart baby scandal and that all kicked off while I was a in medical communication there so that was a slightly difficult period in my career because a lot of the managers and friends of the heart surgeons hated me Um and I did that for a while carried on lecturing and then decided to take a career break from general practice and to go and work in sexual health uh, which I greatly enjoyed one of the happiest and, and funnest few years of my life and from a diagnostic point of view slightly simpler I mean sexual health clinics used to be buried Underground clinic 14 or whatever, all the special clinic, and they were the, the, the one in Bristol was a porter cabin on top of a plague pit around the back of the eye hospital. um But HIV money in most cases had in, improved sexual health clinics, apart from the one in Bristol where HIV was under the infectious disease specialist. So we did the routine chlamydia nsu gonorrhea stuff but it was more simple in a way and you made the diagnostic diagnosis often in front of the patients you could look at stuff down the microscope and figure out what was going on and people were desperate for help generally very grateful and very rarely sued you so i enjoyed doing that then i went back to general practice because i've been been out of it for a few years i had to retrain so i went back to a a practice in canesham that i worked at previously as a gp returner and again, did that for about five or six years. And then my last job, I decided for a change, I'd work in paediatric chronic fatigue. So having been slightly sniffy about ME CFS as a medical student and bought into that rather horrible, disparaging, yuppie flu stigma, uh, it was a real eye-opener for me to work in an area of huge uncertainty, um medically unexplained symptoms, uh, and although there's a specific diagnosis now for ME CFS, there's no specific diagnostic test. And alongside this, all the time in my medical career for 35 years, I was writing for Private Eye, uh, doing some comedy uh, broadcasting with Trust Me, I'm a Doctor and lots of stuff on Radio 4. So one of the initial purveyors of the portfolio career Um, Although it wasn't planned at the time, I was just speaking up initially because I was angry as a junior doctor. I just got picked up by the BBC and various others by chance. Uh, And so I really enjoyed my 35 year medical career. I retired at 60 and haven't decided yet. Um,
0: I think it's really interesting, some of the threads that go through what you've said. And one of the things is about the importance of narrative story and building relationships with people. And the other is how uncertainty is is actually everywhere. Mm. And th- th- some uncertainties are hugely complex, like with uh, the CFS slash ME. There's a, a lot of very complicated uncertainties mm. there. But a lot of the people that I'm involved with educating have what we've come to call the what you do and you don't know what to do moment, which yes. is often not so much because they don't know enough but it's often because they're not quite sure what skills to use. Um, Experienced practitioners often have those moments, but then instead of pulling out a bit of magic knowledge, they probably spend more time listening to the patient or building a relationship or or saying, well, or, or actually sharing their thinking and saying, well, this is complicated. You know, there are these various things in play. What should we do? What should we do? So I think you've kind of answered my first question, which was to say, um how you came to be interested in uncertainty because it certainly sounds as though there's been a lot yeah. of uncertainty swirling around some of the things we you're doing
1: there has been i mean it, why i went into medicine which is the question you get asked at medical school and i'm not sure i told the truth at the time but my um dad was australian brilliant academic chemist uh captain of all australian universities basketball team very handsome uh, and has died suddenly in 1969 when I was only seven we were living in Perth so I grew up in Perth in Western Australia uh, and I was told at the time he'd had a heart attack. I, I didn't find out till my mid-30s he'd taken his life um, but a lot of people who go into medicine do so because they've had some sort of family trauma and so I'd gone I was pretty certain up to the age of seven that I was a you know aggressive competitive ginger haired Australian boy that life would be perfect and then I realized that people died. You get that lesson. Humans are the one species to no longer advance that we're all going to die. That's pretty much the thing that is certain. And so I thought, gosh, is my heart going to stop at 38? Um, and then I worked out that I'd be 38 in the year 2000. And then I remember growing up thinking about doing medicine and discovering the World Health Organization in 1978, I think, had promised health for all by the year 2000 which seemed like a pretty optimistic promise when you saw that people like Eddie Armin and Leonard Brezhnev and Bukasa and mm. Baby Doc and all sorts of murderous dictators had signed up for health for all by the year 2000. So I thought I, I was slightly sceptical about that. But I always had that uncertainty that was I a ticking time bomb? Was my heart going to suddenly stop? Mm. And so I think that's also what gave me my bravery when I thought, gosh, I might be dead at 38. The reason people said when I started speaking up and I started and oh, you shouldn't do that. Don't rock the boat. You'll never work in the southwest of England again, or whatever. And I thought, you know, I might be dead at thirty-eight, so yeah. I've got to, I'll, I'll blow everything out of the water, and I'll leave other people to pick up the pieces, which is slightly childish, but also a lot of fun. Uh, right. so As
0: and, and actually, you're living proof that speaking out and and not knowing where it's leading doesn't, you know, isn't a bad thing, and might actually actually help
1: and um, the, to... o- the other quote i ought to say is i remember somebody at medical school quoting i think david sacker the founding father of evidence based medicine saying that half of what you learn at medical school will turn out to be wrong Trouble is we don't know which half, which has ah. been paraphrased in all sorts of ways. But I remember thinking then, you know, yeah. it's, it's that. good to know that science has always got uncertainty. And it, yeah. when I trained in the eighties, often we didn't tell patients their diagnosis. We wouldn't tell people if they had cancer or motor neuron disease or multiple sclerosis because that beneficent paternalism of doctors was trumped everything else. You assumed that you wouldn't want to know. And suddenly we've turned from that to explaining everything in minute detail, which in essence means passing the uncertainty and doubt down the line, which actually most patients don't want. The reason yes. they go to the doctor is they want them to manage the uncertainty. What would you do, doctor? And what would you do if it was your mother? And you say, yeah. oh, no,
0: I can't tell you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And here are the things I we don't know. It sort of comes back to that Aristotelian idea about how virtue is somewhere in the middle, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. And I think one thing I'd like to focus on today is... How those feelings of uncertainty affect clinicians themselves, particularly when they're consulting? Because although we've got lots of scientific information around, clinicians often feel uncertain, and they often feel that they're not doing the right thing. And I, I, mm. my impression is that people feel that like even more than they ever did. And I, I wonder where you think that's come from—that that feeling. Uh, of, I, I'm quite sure.
1: I'm probably going to make an appalling sexist generalization now, but based on a sample of two, which is my wife and I, uh, Jo is uh, Dr. Rose, as she was named by maiden name. Lovely Doctor. I'd love to have her as my GP. Compassionate and diligent, but always used to bring things home a bit with her. So she would worry that the indigestion she saw might have been an angina. And occasionally, as it happens to us, all something would happen. Somebody she thought had indigestion died from angina of a heart attack. And then, of course, that colors your practice. So she would always bring things home and want to offload them. Whereas me being a man would say, do you know what? In very difficult circumstances, I did the best I could. And if it turns out to have been angina when I thought it was indigestion, then so be it. I might get sued, but I've got my medical defense and whatever. And maybe, maybe there's a slight man brain, woman brain thing. I'm going to call all sorts of controversy. But but I know that most of the women I know, obviously we have more women in medicine now. Yeah tend to reflect and think about it more. And the blokes just go, you know, I did this best I could and I'm going to move on and do the
0: next thing now. Well, I've always taken your approach rather than than the other approach. (laughs) So uh, I think I must be living proof that that isn't completely true. But I think there is a sense uh, of wanting to do a perfect job and be good. And I think a lot of women are socialised to please everybody else and to do a good yes. job and to do the right thing yeah. and they can therefore be a bit more plagued by by worries.
1: The the so- one thing I learned actually which was really useful was from Roger Neighbour when one of his books came out and his books were so long and I thought oh gosh and I think is this slightly disappearing inside myself but the safety netting I picked Mm -hmm. up fairly early on so I always would say I would safety net any consultation to say this is what I think it is it may turn out to be something else if xyz happens please do this Mm -hmm. and so fairly early on in my career I safety netted and I've never I've only once had a complaint and I've never been sued in 35 years partly because I only work part-time but also because I would always safety net
0: Yeah, well, I think that's really interesting. And for people who are listening to this podcast as part of TALC, of course, there's a whole module in TALC about closing consultations effectively, which includes the skills you need to make a really good and effective safety net, which definitely reduces the incidence of complaints and problems. Mm -hmm. And like you, Phil, I worked in clinical practice actually full time for three decades. And although I have to say, fingers crossed, nobody sued me either. So although equally uh, like you, I think, well, I did my best. Uh, I, I never went into work drunk or careless. And so I was doing the best that I could. And so if yes. it did go wrong, that's what the MDU is for, isn't it, really?
1: But also, I think... You liked your patients and they liked you. And that's an issue, you know, what do patients want? They know that you're not infallible, but they want to be liked and cared for. And if they think that you were a decent person who did your best in difficult circumstances and then you apologise if something goes wrong, they're much less likely, I think, to take action.
0: That's so true. And I think um going back to what you were saying about narratives and stories, the relationship we have with patients is so crucial in managing all these things. So when clinicians are uncertain and they're mostly trying their best to do a difficult and challenging job, what, what do you think it's like for them? What what passes through their minds when they get that? What do you do when you don't know what to do? I'm uncertain sort of moment. What do you think the impact is on clinicians? I,
1: I think it's hugely variable. Um, and I I've always been a talk out loud. And so I've always shared it in a way that without freaking out the patients saying look this is really complicated i'm not entirely sure what to do and Mm -hmm. i I, i've i've never found people say go well you should know what to do you're the doctor Mm
0: -hmm. whenever
1: you admitted that there's something i may have to go and look something up i may you know I mean, in the secret day, the old days used to tilt your computer screen and, and consult <laughs> Professor Google. <laughs> or, so
0: good to do or that. Dr. Wikipedia,
1: that. Or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, that was, the, I, I also practiced in the era where computers came in. We started off and we had the old Lloyd George envelopes, and no computer screens or very few. Uh, and then we went to this thing where everything was on the screen and you didn't look at your patients. Um, I, I've always shared that uncertainty. I think it is. We don't like uncertainty in anything. That's interesting in any aspect of our life, whether it's financial management, the pandemic what's happening in the Middle East. People hate, generally humans hate uncertainty. And and that's often the elephant in the room. And people often come to doctors for reassurance. Um, but I think, you know, we need to learn. We learned that during the pandemic. There's no such thing as zero risk. And there's no such thing as 100% certainty. And I think having the communication skills to share that, so... I think people who internalise it and don't share it, it'll just sit there and fester, and you just feel it there, won't you? That'll yeah, the, yeah. Uh, I'd, the I'd metaphorical like... <laughs> uncertainty. <laughs>
0: uh, I'd like to talk a bit more about the internalising and festering part, because mm. I think, uh, again, in talk, there's a whole... Uh, chapter on how to share uncertainty with patients and mm. I think patients do often want certainty and it, it, on the one hand you don't want to say to them well we can't ever be sure about anything you go away and take the uncertainty away yourself mm. but at the same time we can share reasonable uncertainties but I'd like to go back to this internal festering thing a bit because I think a lot of clinicians that I've spoken to um, do fester about their uncertainties they do worry about their uncertainties they feel uh, perhaps inferior or useless because they fit they feel uncertain and one of the things I always find in teaching sessions on this is when they discover that everybody feels the same that everybody feels uncertain sometimes and a lot of people wrestle with it it's a bit of a relief but you were saying it eats away at you What what's the effect of it eating away at you what does that do yeah. to a clinician as a person do you think?
1: I think it does. Well, you lose your confidence. That's the thing. And then patients judge it just as a patient. Someone in the audience can tell whether a comedian is confident or not. You can also tell when your doctor's losing confidence. I used to find it easy in the old days. It's really boring when old doctors go on about the old days. But the thing I used to love about initially when I did general practice with no computers is there was a, there was a protected time for the whole team to come together after morning surgery. You'd have a gap and then you'd have morning surgery and you'd say, I'm a bit worried about Mavis Biggins or something mm-hmm. and the senior partner would say well she married him and he married her and he knocked her against the fridge and they ran off together and he had that and their son fell her, and they piece all the bits of the jigsaw together that they automatically knew all well, that complex family psychosocial history and I always thought wouldn't it be great if the computer had a caps lock four button you could press and all that <laughs> and so you would share it with the senior partners yeah, and exactly. that was always what you do with uncertainty you shared it with more members of the team because we've always known the other thing that always struck you is, is that if you take ten, a set of complex symptoms to 10 different doctors, you might get 10 different diagnoses or you might get 10 different treatments based on the same whatever. We learned from the pandemic that no one expert has all the answers. Mm. So sharing stuff amongst the team with people with different perspectives. So I think the doctors who come uncertain, who have a big nod of anxiety, the ones who also have trouble admitting that mm. to their peers as well as to everyone else. So mm. it's always great to have two or three mates and they may be, Uh, You know, GP assistants, you may have a little group of those or there may be partners where you just have a chance to offload and to arrange regular sessions where you talk about those. And, and I've never been in a situation where a really useful insight hasn't come from that. So your colleagues and stuff, and you, you do stuff online, but there's a lot to be said again for the direct relationship support that you get from a a mate or a mentor and the laugh that you have. And they will always share a similar story of I did this and that. So that's that, that's where I think it festers if you don't share it with anyone.
0: So there's two things there. If, if you don't if you don't deal with it and kind of explore it and, and openly acknowledge the uncertainty and the effects it's having, firstly, you can lose confidence, which isn't helpful. Mm. Because to a certain extent, well, it's no good being overconfident as a doctor because then you start to believe your own hype. You yeah, yeah. need to be confident enough. But also the other thing you're saying is that that lack of confidence can also feed into increasing anxiety. And, of course, if you're more yes. anxious, I guess you don't sleep as well or you yeah. – don't look after yourself as well or you get more stressed or something like that
1: i think it's true and i i spoke to a group of junior surgeons recently i was asked to speak to them and um, their consultants said to them you will face within your clinical lifetimes every one of you will face really quite unpleasant litigation it's going to happen now everyone would be referred to the gmc or have serious litigation. i mean it's the way it has gone and it's also happening in general practice so there's a combination of the mistake and the uncertainty or whatever and then you know if the patient perceives there's been any form of uh, negligence or incompetence that may be followed up with litigation which is always incredibly stressful and difficult so there are a number of sort of levels of this uncertainty which is why the sharing of it and you can sort of i mean we used to say in the old days we used to give people prognosis didn't we and we'd say oh, i think you've only got three months left to live and then they'd live for three years and you'd feel stupid And so we say, well, I think it's years rather than months or months rather than weeks or weeks rather than days. Uh, But we've sort of stopped giving prognosis now because we know how unreliable it is. Um, But we can sort of say, you know, by far the most likely thing here is that this is a viral condition that is self-limiting and more blah, blah, blah. But there's a small chance that it will blah, blah, blah. And if that happens, you need to X, Y, Z. Mm. So we sort of is giving some reassurance because you're saying in the vast majority of cases, people get better. And I've seen cases like this where people got better. But there's a small chance that this may happen, mm-hmm. so you always have to to say this is the red flag, but what you're doing to the patient is you're passing the buck on for spotting the red flag
0: mm-hmm. you're saying
1: this is the red flag situation where you need to you know if there's suddenly the baby goes all mottled and this rash appears or whatever you've got to x y z and, and... I think
0: it's interesting that idea which i think is is said an awful lot that you know you are definitely going to face litigation or a mm-hmm. referral to the g m c or whatever and although Fingers crossed so far. I haven't had litigation. I've certainly had people make complaints about various yeah. um, things. I don't, I don't know whether you can say whether they're justified or not. The, the patient was unhappy anyway, yeah. and that you have to accept that as a form of feedback, but also at the same time, in a funny way, not take it too personally. And that's no. what the lawyers and the MDU are for, aren't they? is, is so that oh, yeah. although I know it's very stressful at the same time that's my brother-in-law's a lawyer. And he said, don't take it personally. This is what lawyers do for a living. They love it. Let them do it. And I think there's some sense in that, isn't there? Well, we
1: shouldn't and can't be all things to all people. And there's another trap that you fall into if you try to please all your patients, Mm. because you end up then with prescribing them things that they don't need or don't want or actually harm them. So Mm. you're not there. Although you need to be friendly, you're, you're there as an advocate, not primarily there to do precisely what the patient wants. Mm. And there are times where you do need to stand your ground, and you know that that might lead to a complaint or a disappointment. Um, you're also gatekeepers of the money. It's, you mm. can't get away from that. You can't yeah. suddenly give people, you know, four years prescription for a particular tablet or whatever. So I, I, it is unbelievably complicated, but it's not taking it personally is the issue.
0: When we've been talking about our skills-based approach, well, that's fair enough. And as people get more skilled, in fact, I think they often find uncertainty less challenging and often in some ways more interesting, actually. Mm. Uh, certainly, as I got more skilled in general practice, I got much less phased by uncertainty because I saw it more as a kind of interesting, more absorbing than something that's straightforward. Mm. And But one of the things that y- you were saying in the past I've heard you talking about how we have to remember the values that we bring into our consultations and that partly there's that thing you've said about being open and sharing your uncertainty but there's also some attitudes of mind towards the patient that will help and I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit more about those kinds of things.
1: I remember I was very lucky at the very uh, fairly early early on in my career to work with Rob Buckman who had initially um, followed a similar path with Beatles and Buckman so he'd done the Pink Medicine shows as well as training as an oncologist Uh, he'd also done comedy Um, and then he found he was a bit older than I was that he couldn't mix comedy with a a career in the UK they didn't take him seriously so he moved to Toronto but became really interested in consultation skills Mm -hmm. and did a congress or whatever that Tony and I went out and he used to talk It sounded slightly Canadian American about having unconditional positive regard for your patients but that's, I thought, was a really useful value to have in the background. It's not, you know, then there are things that will irritate. I remember Julian Tudor Hart as well saying that <laughs> you just have to find one thing that that connects you to them, that can allow you to feel compassion for them. So you might absolutely hate someone who beats up his wife, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, he raises pigeons or something and there's something that you can latch onto. So you have to have the seeds of a relationship. It was interesting. I, when I started teaching communication skills myself, um, I was very lucky to work with a, 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 a linguist called John Skelton, who was my senior lecturer. So he brought a linguistic background to this and he was slightly skeptical of the multitude of skills based. So he said, there's a skills based approach, but there's dozens of these skills you look at and it's very good. But you look at the Cambridge, Calgary, whatever, suddenly you're almost overwhelmed with the tidal wave of skills. But actually, what matters as much as that is the values that you bring into it. Um, and I can remember having a big debate uh, when I was teaching communication skills as to whether we should run a course called acting skills for doctors. And the reason I said this is that we had all these brilliant actors who could portray all sorts of emotions very convincingly, whether they felt them or not. And I said, well, sometimes you work as a junior doctor, you're working 100 hours a week. You're honestly too tired to care. But if you can be taught the skills to appear to be compassionate when you really are actually quite indifferent and you'd rather be in bed, that has to be a good thing. And I said, could we run this course? And my professor said, no, 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 that'll send out completely the wrong message that, you know, we're pretending to care when we don't in a sort of a how to win friends and influence people type of way. I think the mixture is somewhere there. But the value, as soon as you become indifferent to your patients or dislike them, I mean, that's clearly a, a red flag for burnout. Um So I think you've got to be genuinely interested in them and their story and have that value of compassion. But the, the value of compassion only works if you also have self-compassion. Yeah. You, there's no point in working yourself to a point where you lose compassion in your patients because you're absolutely exhausted yourself. And so there's a sort of a happy medium where compassion works both ways.
0: We're, we're going to come on to that in a bit more detail. I just, I just want to re-emphasize the things that you've said there, because that unconditional positive regard is about that's generally about being patient centered in a in a skillful way isn't it mm. and being aware of each individual as a different person and mm. aiming to be on their side in some mm. way if you like and also to therefore that to make that connection which we we talk and talk a lot about the primacy of building a relationship with with patients mm. and really listening to what they're saying particularly about their feelings and their thoughts And that connection is what enables you to feel the compassion, isn't it? And actually, in a paradoxical way, and I I don't know whether you agree with this, but my observation is that when you connect with patients, you use your energy to look after them. But somehow that connection feeds back. You get something from it because people um, I don't just mean that people say thank you, although it's very nice when they do. And definitely that gives you a little energy boost if someone says, well, thank you very much. You've done a good job or thank you for listening or whatever Mm. it is. But there is something about being in that space of a shared connection, which actually is quite energising in a weird kind of way. I, d- I don't know whether you. Yeah, think I, I think thought. it's really
1: sp- special. And the one reason I didn't just run away to join the circus and pursue a media show business career is that I really enjoyed uh, consultations. And I think, as for a man particularly, being put in a position where you are, you're not forced, but you're expected to be compassionate. I think very valuable and and because in my last job in in chronic fatigue we'd have long consultations you knew when a consultation was going really well or you knew when you needed to steer it onto different ground and i would often feel ex- exhausted but actually really rewarded after
0: mm.
1: very complex long consultations full of uncertainty and why because you felt that the relationship you'd offered, and the things with the, the particularly medically unexplained symptoms is that people have often been stigmatized and people don't believe you if you've got long covid you know, Boris Johnson scribbles bollocks over long COVID paper at the Inquiry, and they're dismissed. It's seen as, you know, supertentorial, as we used to say rather dismissively. So I, I just acknowledging, the thing that you can imagine I'm worst at, and still am, is what Rob Buckman used to call active listening. And I'd always like, ha, active listening. But actually, it is the absolute key. If you want to establish what matters to a patient and where they're coming from and what their life is like, you have to spend the first half of the consultation listening. But that takes time. And I, I haven't, I don't think I ever quite mastered that in a general practice context of 10 minutes yeah. or 15 think, minutes you I, probably have now.
0: I think that's an interesting um, and widely held view that that time is, as it were, the only thing that matters. But I've certainly seen unskilled uh, GPs who, I'm, who are early on in their training have yeah. a consultation that lasts half <laughs> an hour or 45 yeah, yeah, minutes yeah, 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 yeah. where... They don't listen very well and exactly yeah. nothing gets achieved. Yes, and um, really at the end of their training, they can do a consultation that lasts 15 minutes yes. where the patient leaves and says, thank you so much for listening. I really feel much better now. I know what we're going to do and yeah. we're on a better track. So I while I think time is important in the hugely complex areas that you're talking about, in routine, i don't, I don't like the word routine, but in ordinary day to day clinical practice, if you have that quality of attentiveness to the relationship and that attentiveness to mm. listening, and the and I think John Lorna refers to it as close listening, a bit like reading a poem yes. closely and yeah. understanding the meaning of every word that somebody says or every mm. little pause or every little thing that they say to you then you can get a lot more of a connection quite quickly and yeah
1: yeah so yeah. it's it
0: just a matter of time no,
1: no it absolutely isn't it is about skill but it's also about knowledge and experience so the, yeah. the real experience of so Brian for example who I loved my Yorkshire GP uh, he knew his family really well and mm. so you do this thing, and he'd be asking about the guinea pig or the parrot or whatever, and mm. some social concern, and then you could see his hypothetical-deductive reasoning. you mm. knew do what I he 100. was doing, testing these various mm. hypotheses while he was inquiring about the bunchgar and whatever. So yes, mm. time management is absolutely critical, yeah, and he, he too very rarely got uh, uh, any, uh, any complaints. complaints. <laughs> his patients yeah. loved I him, think- and they said, "Oh, you know, he love, he's lovely. He, he genuinely cares. As soon as yeah. they, were, they had a doctor who cared for them, if they made the odd mistake, they would forgive them.
0: I always think it's very interesting in general practice that you can meet someone actually that you've never met before who tells you about some symptom that to them is very embarrassing and within like three or four minutes they can trust you enough to take their clothes off and let you do a rectal examination and and then you tell them something moderately terrible and they say thank you very much so I think this the quality of that initial connection and the and it it comes back partly to the skill but also to what you're saying about the value that you're this person in front of you you're interested in them you care about them You, you are there to do your best for them not to fix everything or be perfect but to show up with all your whatever it is you've got in your skill set on their behalf and I think people pick that up very quickly as to whether you yeah. know, it's a bit like that computer says no thing. People know straight away whether you're actually yes. interested in them.
1: But do you ever act yourself? Are you ever so exhausted that you're pretending to, to be interested when actually you're thinking, gosh, well, I'm not Well, I think there's
0: thing. a um, – I always think – <laughs> I'm interviewing you now,
1: haven't you? Yeah. It's coming well,
0: I? Yeah, well, I think to a certain extent, because I think one thing's about professionals – which is different from amateurs is professionals do a good job, whether they feel like it or not. Yes. So if it's Monday morning and I've had a great weekend and I really would rather not be at work, that to me is not an excuse for not saying, actually I have to listen now or on Friday afternoon, you know, when it's getting getting late and you're thinking, right, I'm really tired now. It may be that you don't do the perfect job, but you do a job that's good enough. And The thing about building the relationship with the patients, and this happened to me one day, is I saw a lady about something or other. It's the end of the day. We dealt with whatever it was. And she came back to see me about a week later. And she said, I actually wanted to talk to you about this other thing. um, But I know you very well. I've seen you lots of times. And I could tell you were really tired. So I thought I won't tell her about this today. I'll book another appointment. She can go home. Wow. And I felt that was incredibly moving to be the recipient of that kind of. Yeah. And what you forget is that patients are observing you all the time. Most of the time they don't tell you about it. Yeah. And they're observing like, does she seem interested? Is she bothered? Does she care? Yes. But on yeah. that occasion, if it was a bit like Balin talks about, I think, the, the doctor and the patient have a mutual investment bank. The investments yes. I'd made in looking after her before yes. kind of yeah. paid off because then she looked at me and thought, hmm, it's maybe time for me to just pull back a bit and, yeah. and you know, cut her some slack because it's seven o'clock and she looks like she needs a dinner, you know. So yeah. uh, I think it's interesting how it could go both ways, really.
1: I had a, this is awful story, but I'll share it. Uh, I had one occasion where I'd be, I'd, I would often do gigs late at night, how mm. many gigs or whatever, and then come back and be doing a clinic the next day. And there was one where there'd been a terrible rail delay when I was really exhausted and was, you know, not slightly dead on my feet, but, you know, Chronic fatigue. And I went out to the waiting room. I always have always had a habit of going out and greeting people in the waiting rooms, saying hello and escorting them in. Uh, and there was a a girl who'd had chronic fatigue and had various other problems and and hadn't been taken seriously and been referred from pillar to post and was allegedly depressed and and life was awful. And, um, her mum and her mum, uh, obviously had a tough old life. And, uh, I, in my knackered state, I mistook her for dad. So I can't, So I said, hello, you must be. And I always you must be whatever the girl's name was. And you must be Da. And I was halfway through Da when I realized it was mum. And I thought, well, I can't say you must be da Mum because that will sound ridiculous. And so I said it. And as I said it, the child, bless her, who apparently hadn't laughed for about three years, Absolutely roared with laughter. I mean, I really, it was so loud that my secretary came out of her office and said, is everything okay? Here? And you can just see your whole career, TV's doctor film, blah, 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 blah. Um, and bless her. I said, God, I was just so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I sat down and, and she looked at me, she said, Doctor, you should have gone to specsavers. And then we all laughed and that was fine. I tell you, I tried really hard. That's the hardest I've ever tried. And I was at that time, rather unfortunately, I was having to, you know, you had to collect patient feedback for your appraisal every whatever years. And I got, I didn't get a highly satisfied, but I got a satisfied from that at the end of that, having mistaken the mum for a dad. So you can row back and people are understanding. Yeah,
0: yeah. you can but, row back. And even if you're knackered, you can be good enough, can't you?
1: So Yeah, well, that's the thing. The other thing that I would mention is that having chaired the NICE conference, I did it for 12 years, I was asked to chair it. it's just fascinating. And I it's great that people are interested in clinical yeah. excellence, but I would say every meeting, it's all very well having NICE and you can deliver clinical excellence on a good day with a, full cohort of staff. But on Sundays, you deliver NIGE. We need a National Institute for Good Enough. Yeah. So what you need in your mind is here's the here's the safety bar where yeah. you get over that and you're delivering a competent level of care, even if it isn't all bells and whistles. Yeah. And here's the nice. And so you need to be somewhere between NIGE and nice.
0: Yeah, I, li- I like NIGE and nice. I- I'd like to really focus away from patients onto clinicians now because clinicians um, do have to also live in a it's not just that they have uncertainty within the consultation, but they live in a system that's quite uncertain at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of issues around staffing, about money, political issues. How how do you feel clinicians can sort of navigate that swirl of uncertainty around, will we have an NHS in 10 years? You Uh, know, will I pass my exams? Will they change the exam format before I get round to doing it? You know, all these kind of other bigger uncertainties. And
1: you can't not take it personally because you have formed a compassionate relationship with someone who's coming back to tell you that i you know i can't afford to go private and yet my life is in ruins because i'm in so much pain and i can't work and whatever Mm. and and you'd be inhuman if you didn't take that all on board but there's only so much that you can take responsibility for
0: i think as well in a sense it's almost the same idea that you had before that um While the system swirls around, it's better not to take it all too personally. Uh, It's not directed directly at you, but to find ways to swim through it. Again, similar to what you were saying before, talk to your colleagues, discuss what you're going to do, think about how you're going to get some integration of the different parts of your life together. Uh, and how you might get some interest in stimulation from other activities, whether they're, I mean, for yeah. me, I did work full time in practice, but I also spent most of my career being involved in medical education. Yes. And I found that as stimulating, exciting, interesting, and rewarding. I, I wouldn't think of it as a side hustle, but that's the modern phrase for it. Well, I it is. And we to self to carry on.
1: Yeah, we try to self-justify, don't we, as humans. I mean, I've always said, when I've made a whole room full of whatever, 300 people laugh a lot for... 90 minutes that's probably as useful as prescribing them statins and you yeah. do the mar- marginal benefits and when you think of most of the drugs that we prescribe for the individual have quite marginal benefit obviously on a huge public health level statins and blood pressure pills make a huge difference but from mm. an individual making them laugh might be as useful in some instances so and the education and stuff that i've done too i think is equally valid as face-to-face stuff so i don't think we should disparage other routes mm. and we always laugh at the tv doctors the ones who are less evidence-based than others, but there are some really, really good ones out there. So, you know, and in terms of educating a whole population, having a large Twitter or Instagram or whatever following um, is really helpful. I mean, you can say what you like about Twitter and some of it is absolutely vile, but there are some really brilliant minds on Twitter who are willingly sharing really interesting information. And and as a doctor, I think that's a perfectly reasonable use of your time to educate the public. Yeah,
0: well, that's interesting. I'd like to really as we kind of come towards the end, well, it's not really the end, but the final section of this podcast, I'd like to really think about how clinicians can protect their health and their mental health. And I know you have a a phrase that you like people to kind of um, care for themselves. It's like getting the oxygen mask on yourself before you help other people, as they always say on the airplanes. So what's this idea that you have about dropping your clangers every day? Can you explain what that's all about?
1: Well, when I moved from general practice to doing paediatrics, I wanted to find a way of explaining health to kids initially. um, And I was a big fan of the clangers when I was um, growing up. 1969, they came on our screens. They're not as culturally diverse as you'd like to think, because all the clangers I've ever found are pink. But the thing I loved about them is that they're all clanger shaped. They don't really give a fig what they look like. They wore homemade clothes. Uh, They lived on the blue planet. They had a very healthy diet of um soup uh, from the soup dragon, followed by blue string pudding. They were outdoors all the time. There were no screens, so there was no internet, no constant comparison, no self-harm, no anything. They out- They did drop clangers. They'd make mistakes. They'd learn from them. And most episodes ended in a hug. So I thought, could I explain the concept of health, saying we need to live in little communities of clangers, halve our carbon footprint, save the planet? Uh, and then I had another beer and I discovered that CLANGERS is an acronym for everything we need to do to live like a CLANGER. So CLANGERS uh, stands for connect, learn, be active, notice, give back, eat well, relax, sleep. Now, the CLANG bit came from government research. I think the ways of well-being, the foresight research came up with CLANG. So I avid the ers. Uh, and so when I started teaching in an area like Chronic fatigue or some medically unexplained symptoms and other things. If you don't always make a diagnosis, but you know that the fundamental joys, ingredients, pillars of health are clangers. So whatever your diagnosis, being able to connect, learn, be active, notice, give back, eat well, relax, sleep, focusing on those really helps. When you use it with patients, I'm I'm happy. I can do my daily clangers because I'm fairly fit and wealthy, and I live in beautiful North Somerset, and that's fine. But if you're living with Debt, depression, domestic abuse, diabetes, you're a really busy GP, you're living with long COVID, then it's really hard to do them. But I found it quite a useful way, having started with patients, for carers to reflect uh on their health. And and I've been on tour with the clangers and gone all around the country and people have used it. Carers networks are using it. And the interesting thing about the carers networks is they say sometimes you can't do all eight clangers. Sometimes I had a really bad day and I only managed three. But what's interesting about it, it's not so prescriptive. It's not telling you who you have to connect with, what you have to learn, how you have to be active, what you have to notice, give back. It's just saying that these things are fundamental to human existence and health. And probably the most important of all of these is connection. What fascinated me, particularly about the pandemic, is that we scared the entire population and then we sent them home to isolate. (laughs) So the worst thing you do when you frighten someone is lock them away on their own. Normally, when something scary happens is you share it as a group. Human beings are social animals. We exist to feel part of something bigger as if we're leaves on a tree. When I trained, every hospital I worked in would have a hospital show. The whole hospital would come together and celebrate the hospital. There were loads of med-chi or medical societies right round there. GPs, consultants would get together socially. And I've noticed over the years, these things are dying out. I'm doing one in Colchester in January, which is the oldest medical society in Britain or something. But you see far fewer where, where as a profession we're connecting now. Everything is internet everything is online everything is isolated so it's just the the, the whole clangers thing is um i think environment should be clangers friendly where you work should be clangers friendly um you should think about you know clangers as friendly communities etc etc it's quite a useful model to think about your own health and to think of the health of your patients and if you're not eating well you're not relaxing you're not sleeping uh, you're not having self-love for yourself then you're not going to communicate terribly well and do your job well uh and what's interesting, I spoke to, Claire, I was, in fact, I'm interviewing Claire Gerard recently, who's be well known to you, but as well as all her other GP work, did a lot of work for doctors in distress, et cetera. But the good news is that when they receive help, the vast majority of them go back to frontline work. Mm. So there are a huge amount of doctors in distress there, but there is help available there. And when they talk about their distress and get counseling for it, they do tend to improve to a, a level where they're able to get back part-time or full-time. So there is some optimism uh, in medical yeah. meltdown.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that 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 you say that because in a way, if you apply your clangers more regularly, that would prevent a lot of problems, wouldn't it? And I, I thought it's particularly—I want to talk a bit more about connection because mm. there's there's all these different levels. There's connecting with your colleagues and sharing ideas. There, there's connecting with your own community in whatever form that is. But also I think um, modern practice tends to isolate people in their difficulties, whereas actually, for example, if there's no food available in the hospital at night, then that may make you hungry or it may make you have to bring a packed dinner in. But if you connected with all the workers in the hospital at night Mm. and you all turned up at the chief executive's office and said, we're connected together and we want to say something about this because we're cross about it, it's much more likely that something will happen. So connection is a very powerful way of both it is nourishing yourself, but yeah. you're also achieving the changes that you want to see, isn't it? I've,
1: I've done a lot of work with NHS whistleblowers and you're absolutely right. If you whistleblow on your own and are isolated, they'll uh, progress okay. it to an employment tribunal and you stand very little chance of success. No matter what legislation we have, if you do it en masse, you're far more likely to be heard. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could argue that the doctor strikes at the moment are sort of on mass whistleblowing. They're doing yeah. it about pay because they can't actually do much about working conditions and career progression and stuff at the moment. But I, in my sense, that's entirely legitimate, and it's beholden on the government and the BMA yeah. to sit down like grown-ups and sort it out. So I think you're right that that connection. But also, as we've come back to the beginning, that health is relational as much as it is medicational. I wouldn't be where I am now without my lovely wife, Jo, who I've been married with for over 30 years. She was a GP for all of that time. And sometimes I've been, a, as a lecturer in communication skills, I've been an appalling communicator as men are. I disappear inside my head. And when I discovered in my mid-30s, I was very married to Joe, and we had our one of our children, Will. And I discovered my mum had decided to tell me rather late that my dad had taken his life, um, locked himself in his lab and sadly taken cyanide. Uh, and in 1960s Australia, it just wasn't talked about. Real men didn't get depressed, etc. And she was advised not to tell the kids until they were old enough to take it. Uh, and as well as my dad, her uh, granddad and her uncle had also taken their lives. So there were lots of men, male suicide. And she didn't, when my brother and I were growing up, want to share this with us in case it suggested a route out when times were stressful. And mum was a bit reluctant for me to be a doctor because she knew that it was a high stress job with high suicide risk. And I was probably better off not knowing. It was a slight irony that here was either fearless truth seeker in private eye, who was doing all this. And I didn't know the truth about my own family. But actually, that was quite compassionate in a way. But when I found out the truth, it made me more compassionate as a doctor and a journalist. I did less aggressive exposure in private eye. I'd, I was slightly guilty in a sort of name, shame, blame way. When, as we know, medicine is really complicated. and Name, blame, shame really improves the situation. So I think when you know, and we will all have people we know and patients we've lost and maybe members of family who we've lost to suicide and other mental illnesses, and we won't stop all of them, but the ones that we can stop. um, The the lesson I learned, I started becoming particularly interesting in patients with suicidal ideation, and I met a lovely young man who said, my depression is like a gremlin who lives in a box at the end of the garden, and I know he's there all the time, and some days I can keep him in the box, and sometimes he crawls up the garden, crawls, onto my shoulder, climbs inside my head. And he said, the thing you've got to remember about depression, Dr. Phil, is that it tells you lies. The little bugger climbs inside my head and says, you're useless. There's no point you being here. Nobody would miss you. You'd be better off out of here. And I said, how do you cope with this? Because you get this, you know, quite regularly. He said, well, my community psychiatric nurse taught me that I have to have 10, I have to force myself to do 10 things that I'd normally enjoy, even if I've got complete ahedonia and I don't want to do any of it. I've got to force myself to listen to a favorite record, take my dog out, go to my favorite coffee shop, have my favorite coffee and whatever. And he said, the interesting thing is that I've never got past number five on the list before the suicidal thoughts have gone. And that's how I cope with it. I force myself to do stuff. And I know that these suicidal thoughts are transitory. So however low you get, there are strategies that you can do and share that in many cases, but sadly not all of them will make those things pass. So that's the, you know. so
0: in a way the clangers are sort of like that aren't they because um connection yes. is so important i love uh, that health is relational not medicational and i'm going to be yeah. stealing that <laughs> phrase i will attribute it to you when i remember uh, i think learning new things it always gives you a little dopamine hit yeah. and we all know it's good to be physically active i wanted to ask you a bit more about the end for noticing things what do you mean by that what what notice what well,
1: well, you probably noticed the growth in mindfulness books because they're everywhere. Everything's mindfulness these days. It is interesting. We're so, we've become so screen obsessed. I live and I'm lucky to live in a beautiful part of the country with a lovely view of a lake from my window. But it's the idea, I think of, of, of filling up your senses with the joy and beauty of the world around you without having to judge it. So we're so used to judging, you know, can you look at the beauty of your partner without trying to diagnose her? Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? We're so fixed you're thinking, "Oh, is that mole?" Oh, "Hang on." "Slightly oh, hang on." Oh, All the um and we're really bad at that and I've learned and I I do my mindfulness when I'm dog walking. Interestingly, uh, I have two lovely dogs and I have dog time in the morning where I put my phone down and the two dogs come in and then the cat will often come in and snuggle in. Uh, And I just spend time feeling the dog's fur, sniffing the slightly smelly dog's fur, because it always smells a bit of something they've been lying in. Um, And I absolutely adore that. Uh, So um, people do it in different ways. Gardening is another way. I mean, it's generally getting outside and doing stuff that you love.
0: So it needn't necessarily be like move to Somerset and look at a lake. It could be the sky outside your house or. Looking yes. At the trees in your street, wherever you are, or maybe looking at your beautiful children, or maybe looking at a picture of somebody you love, or noticing but that picture you've got on the wall—anything. Th- there's really.
1: all of that. But I know some GP surgeries who. Uh, there's one in Lambeth, the Lambeth Food Cooperative, who grow vegetables mm-hmm. in the practice garden, and people go out there. Some have got grass on their roofs. Mm-hmm. In the hospital I used to work in, it had a little garden, courtyard garden, and very few people would go. I'd have a really difficult consultation. I'd just go and sit in the garden.
0: Yeah, just there's no. There's yeah. usually
1: a place somewhere, wherever you happen to be, where there's a bit of green space or a tree with autumn leaves that you can focus on or just a crocus coming through or something. And it it does. Once you get into it, I can't do meditation. I don't understand all that stuff, but I can sit down there and fill up my senses with nature.
0: That's really interesting. Ronald Epstein has written a very interesting book called Attending says that one of the ways to maintain your mental health is to notice a moment of exquisite beauty every day. And he says that doesn't necessarily have to be a marvellous sunset or something. It could just be a happy smile on a child who comes to see you or somebody's beautiful earring or, yes. or just something that you notice that you go, oh, yeah, I've noticed that. That's a really interesting and beautiful thing. So
1: The uh, smiling is interesting, isn't it? I remember when I was working in the, in the hospital, I'd walk around and I'd smile at everyone. People probably think I'm a bit simple. And I think the, the percentage of smilers in hospital has gone down. People yes. are looking a bit careworn. <laughs> yes. but we don't smile. And yet, when you smile and somebody smiles back, a frosty cobweb is my favourite. I mean, just finding a cobweb with dew or mm. frost on it is marvellous. And you can okay. find them all over the place.
0: So you've talked a bit throughout your talk, I think, about giving back something to your community or profession mm. and so on, eating well, relaxing. Sleeping is good. Um, what What makes... How do you can you sleep well as an act of will? What makes for good sleep? Do you think?
1: I don't know, and I don't quite. There was that famous book that came out by the I can't remember his name. It's mm. basically the, the well, less sleep, you sleep.
0: Why we sleep? Less, it's called the it? less
1: you sleep, the quicker you die. It was rather depressing. <laughs> that, we used to <laughs> Japanese prisoners of war used to be killed with sleep deprivation, then junior doctors. I think there's a normal distribution on sleep, as with all things, how much you need um the things that work for me is i'm a napper i've become a bit of a napper and i'm lucky to be able to do that and i will often have an afternoon nap Uh, i think there should be nap pods in surgeries and nhs and some companies do that i found black as well as not getting too hot obviously you have a hot bath you're going to cool sheets it's the drop in temperature etc i like an open window when i can i found blackout things make a huge. you know i was a bit skeptical about it and you see people with their blackout masks on uh, but actually, um, I find for a quick nap or to sleep better, having complete darkness uh, makes a huge difference. So, uh, and obviously air plugs if it's noisy. But I, yeah, and I'm I'm lucky to be able to do a thirty minute nap and feel refreshed afterwards, and I've always managed that.
0: Mm. I think
1: the danger is when you get into that caffeine cycle because I love a caffeine first thing in the morning, and again, we react differently to it. But if yeah. you're someone who caffeine has a long half-life for, then it will keep you awake forever. And of course, alcohol is even worse.
0: Yeah, you,
1: th- you think a red glass of red wine and a Pyroton will make you feel fabulous the next day and you wake up feeling bloody awful. Yeah. So you've yeah. got to be a little bit careful with the alcohol. So when I drink, I don't say I drink in the morning, but I <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have a drink. I drink fairly early on in the evening.
0: Right. And- and then and it's stop it's wearing off by the time. It there. Gets- and
1: when you, when your prostate yeah. gets to a certain size if you drink too much alcohol you're up all night anyways so. that
0: that's another consideration and and i think it's interesting what you're saying about darkness because i, I and mean, you've sort of implied this as well is there's an implicit thing about putting your screens down quite a long time before you go to bed as well isn't there? and actually I think doctors, in particular, and clinicians in general, have to be mm. quite meticulous about these ways of maintaining their health. That you know, maintaining your health doesn't happen by accident. You actually have no. to take these actions every day.
1: No, and it's difficult. You, we don't often practice what we preach, which is interesting. So the screen thing, I'm very bad at. But the one thing I love, well, I, love I had a lovely uh, mum and daughter, the daughter with chronic fatigue, and, and often then. Young people with chronic fatigue get quite anxious, understandably, because nobody really understands their condition. They worry about the future. They miss out on loads of school. So the mum had this idea of trying to put put the mind to bed at the evening by having trying to have gratitude for the positive things in life, which we know is a tactic,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and to look at things through rose-tinted spectacles. So she went out and bought two pairs of rose-tinted spectacles, one for her daughter and one for her. And they sit in bed at night with their rose-tinted spectacles on and they see the the day all the week through rose-tinted spectacles. And they said, that works remarkably well. You're just not allowed to. Once you've got rose-tinted spectacles on, you're not allowed to see anything through uh, a darker really darker lens. And I thought that was quite clever.
0: It's interesting. I had a pair of rose-tinted spectacles when I was a youth for some random reason. And I did notice that when you put them on, the world seemed a lot more like rosier. And rosier, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's the secret then. All <laughs> yeah.
1: doctors should wear rose-tinted yeah, maybe,
0: spectacles. Maybe. But, or maybe you should wear them before you go to bed. Or maybe you should spend a few minutes. I think sometimes... Um, The other thing Epstein talks about, actually, I'd forgotten this, that he says at the end of the day, you should have a ritual for leaving the cares of the day at work. And so maybe that's something about having a rose-tinted look at the day and saying, well, it was a very difficult day, but these couple of nice things happened. I'm just going to write them down and put them in my nice things back pocket so I can look at them if I get desperate. Um, And then kind of lock them up at work so you can go home without taking the cares with you i
1: rather, not glibly, but I, I've sort of moved as I got older to sort of embrace doubt. Every time I've been certain, I did a terrible tweet at the beginning of the pandemic, predicting more people would die falling down the stairs than from SARS, based on the fact that we would catch it in 2003, as we did with SARS Mark 1. Mm-hmm. And it turned out, A, we were very ill prepared and B, it was very transmissible and, and oh. transmitted a lot without symptoms. And I got that. And it taught me a lesson that There was no one expert in the pandemic. You've to be careful about how certain you are. And I've sort of moved to embracing uncertainty. I call it the joy of doubt. It's not always joyful. But, you know, what makes movies exciting or sports matches exciting is the doubt. You don't always want certainty. And we need to learn that we're not going to eliminate doubt entirely. And we need to embrace it. This idea Mm. that there's always a diagnosis or there's always a treatment that will work is nonsense. Mm. There's a fair amount where we all just have to say we honestly don't know. We can still do our clangers. We can still have unconditional positive regard for each other, but we're not going to eliminate doubt and uncertainty and we'll do as good a job as we can. Leave it at there because you're no use to anyone if you burn out. If you're a wounded healer and you burn out, you're no use to anyone. Um, and, And so protecting yourself is as important as caring for your patients.
0: I think that's a really good note to end on and to remember that you can Protect yourself and look after yourself at work. You can do all these connect, learn, notice, give back, eat well, and so on at work as well as at home you can you yeah. can make sure that and you can work on connecting with your team and so on and remember that we're aiming for nige, you know we're aiming to be good enough, yeah. And to embrace the doubt, enjoy the uncertainty and go from
1: there. Can I give you one final acronym? Yeah. So that we used to say brand, didn't we? We'd say when you're looking at a complex decision, benefits, risks, alternatives, Mm. what if we did nothing? And I now do bronze, which sounds like a gentleman's grooming shaver. But bronze stands for benefits, risks, alternatives, unknowns. Mm. What if we did nothing and what's our safety net? Mm. And I found in just about everything, benefits, risks, alternatives, unknowns, whatever, nothing, what's our safety net? That works with complex decisions. Mm. My on-the-fly decision tool is intelligent kindness. That's my prism, I think. Is this decision intelligent and is it kind? And it has to tick those boxes. And politically, I nearly stood for Parliament against Jacob Rees-Mogg for Ikip, the Intelligent Kindness Party. So I thought that would upset the UKIP people and would confuse them. But I think that's in our society more generally now. We need to look at things, look at tweets and look at the way people are presenting themselves and think, are they being intelligent? Are they being kind? If they're not, ignore them. Don't engage. The other thing that stresses out doctors, and I know lots of doctors are incredibly stressed because they go on social media and they see all this hate and anger. Just mute it. Just follow people who are intelligent and kind and take their advice. You don't need the counsel of random strangers who might be Russian robots spilting bilge and so many doctors can't help themselves on social media responding and getting involved because they're desperate to be right and that's nonsense and it's somebody deliberately provoking them who doesn't care two figs or who's earning a fortune on their website spreading hate because the more clicks you get the more money you earn on youtube it's absolute nonsense so just don't engage with stuff that isn't intelligent or kind is my final bit of advice
0: i think that's a really good bit of advice and i think any approach to uncertainty needs to use your intelligence and needs yeah. to use your kindness and that's that's a really brilliant way to end thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us it's been really really You're interesting welcome. i've really enjoyed it and um, thank you very much and if you want to know more about uncertainty listen to the outro and you'll learn about how you can read more about it thanks very much phil thank you for listening to Talk 12 on managing uncertainty in consultations. Make sure to get all the episodes by subscribing to the Talc Talks podcast on Podbean or your other podcast provider. All the podcasts and the other teaching and learning consultation skills materials are available at consultationskills.com. Our book, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, what Do You Do when You Don't Know What To Do by myself, Avril Danchak, Alison Lee and Geraldine Murphy is available online and through all good bookshops.